So uh, many of you may know who I am. My name is Mark Williams Thomas. I mainly make television programs, but actually I've now gone into the podcast zone and I have a podcast called The Detective. And these are the experts. <laughs> cool, whatever. <laughs> who are you, fine young sir? <laughs> well, I'm not young. I'm probably the oldest person. No. Aaron, I'm Aaron. Uh, started Generation Y back in 2012 with Justin. We're longtime friends. We met back in '93. Um, the funny story there is we were working at a restaurant as dishwashers, and we were being harassed by the wait staff. And Justin got them to stop by holding up a plate while they were yelling at us, and he would drop it. And they figured, well, if we never... keep yelling at them, we'll eventually run out of plates, which where they were complaining about in the first place. So he he comes in handy. He makes stuff up. <laughs> that was not made up. All right, it was one waiter, but he was very, very anti Justin and Aaron. So, but you got to realize this was what nineteen ninety two three three. Excuse me, and Midwest small little restaurant, and I'm washing dishes, and in walks this guy with a psychic TV shirt on, and I'm like, that's out of place, and so we became friends. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, it was in 2012, I got called in for jury duty for a first-degree murder trial, and uh, jury selection was Monday morning. It was finished by Monday afternoon. We started the trial, and I found him out guilty and put him away for the rest of his life on Thursday. Now, he was guilty, but most of us think that there's a little bit more that should go into it to find somebody guilty and put them away for the rest of their life, and I did too. So that's why I was like, Aaron, I want to tell the world about this, and... We both listened to podcasts, but back then it was like Joe Rogan, Adam Carolla, and This American Life were the only three podcasts in existence. So we decided we'll do this. And uh, and Aaron said he wanted to talk about The Staircase. So Jury Duty was episode one, and Staircase was episode number two. And uh, I only give about 10% percentage to the owl doing it. I think that <laughs> Michael Peterson killed his wife. But yeah, just wanted to throw that out there in case you were wondering. I gave a lot more than 10% to the, the husband doing it, like 98%, 99 Yeah. But, you know, scratches on her head are weird. Yeah, there's Anyways. a shoe print on the back of her leg, too. Tissue. So. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? So well, let's talk about Madeline McCann. Okay. Let's talk about Jeremy Bamba. And I think let's have a chat in terms of, I've always found it fascinating, and you've alluded to some of it now, is why you choose the cases, um, and which ones particularly interest you. So, should we kick off with, and actually I was in the same queue as you were yesterday, not oh. sure at the same time, <laughs> but having just come back from Portugal. Mm -hmm. So I've been in Portugal filming uh, Madeleine McCann program for mm -hmm. the last week, yeah. Germany before that, uh, and then spent four weeks in Germany and Portugal before. But it's one of the biggest stories, certainly in the UK. Yeah. Big over in America? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's pretty big. I don't know that we can match the passion that exists here for the case, but it's definitely an, a very uh, interesting case that Americans are, are following. And, and, of course, we talked before about the news that broke in 2020. So when you were in Portugal, did you visit Prague de la Rue? Yes. So Prague de Luz? Praia de Luz. See, I can't even say it. Something like that. You'll get an email about it. It's yeah, I'm already canceled. <laughs> It was even yeah. worse. So having just come back from Germany, and you try saying the German names, that is even harder. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so basically, I mean, I was there within 72 hours. So when Madeline went missing, oh, I flew me. over there and was there within 72 hours on the ground. And the first thing that struck me compared to British crime scenes is there was nobody there. 
So there was no police officers there. There was no fingerprint search taking place. There was no house to house. And actually, the crime scene itself, the apartment, no police officers. So you could effectively wanted to just walk into the apartment up the back step, back uh, stairs. Isn't that what they claim happened? That there were dozens of people that had walked mm. through that crime scene yeah. before the police ever actually investigated? So, of course, when Madeline goes missing, the first thing that happens is they tell all the local people and everyone just congregates in the room, in the house. So any forensic uh, analysis is totally shot to pieces straight away. And then over the preceding hours, the police turn up. And because the local police turned up prior to the PJs, which is kind of like the national police, the detectives, they didn't really know what they were doing. So mm. by the time the local, by the time the national police had turned up, they'd already trampled over the whole of the crime scene. So that's my problem with a lot of cases is if you don't lock it down immediately, mm. collect evidence, if it doesn't go perfectly, sometimes you can't solve for X. Yeah. Like it's, there's no way to prove or disprove the person who's involved because the case that, you know, the crime scene is completely tainted. And at that point, I, can't accept any of the evidence because you know if you got a bunch of guys scratching their head looking at an engine for 10 minutes before the cops even show up what do you got you know what do you got crime scene preservation is so important i've just finished a program which will go out uh, in the next month or so around the yorkshire ripper uh, and we've just got some new information around the yorkshire ripper's crimes that haven't been solved but what was really interesting is actually when you look at the old photographs in the 1980s of the police officers attending the crime scene. So there's no forensic suit. And in addition, the police officers who turn up, the body's on the ground, and there they are smoking over the body. Uh, and that is just tells you how things have changed so much now. The preservation of the crime scene is so important because that will give you the foundations potentially to move from. And, of course, we know the advances now of DNA and how... you. Know, Back in the early days of DNA, you needed an A4 sheet of paper equivalent to get DNA. Now, it's less than a pinhead. Yeah. And so in the case of Madeleine McCann, if there was uh, an intruder that came in and kidnapped, how do you distinguish between his DNA, his fingerprints, all that stuff? How do you prove that somebody else came into this room when you have... A zillion. I mean, it's already a hotel room. You're already going to have yeah. bunch, you know, a bunch of fingerprints and evidence and DNA from a hundred other people. I mean, don't, not I don't want to think about what a hotel room looks like under a black light. Anyway, well, well, before we go on, though, should we set it up? I mean, Madeline McCann at the time was three years old. Yeah, she had twin brothers who were two. Yeah, Sean and Emily, and her parents, uh, Kate and Jerry, were hanging out with friends, but they were. I'm trying to remember the distance. It was just like about 150 feet, feet or something So it's something about 150 like yards. So you've oh, got okay. the That's 150 yards. Apartment 5A. They are there on a holiday with a group of friends who become later known as the Tapas mm-hmm. Group. And that evening, they leave Madeline and the twins in the bedroom in the apartment for them to go with the rest of the Tapas to a area which is about 100 meters as the crow flies, a little bit longer if you have to come out and walk it, because the problem was is that where they were, you had to come out of the apartment onto a public road to go back in again, to go back to where they are. And And no one's flying. (laughs) I hate to point out the obvious, but that's where the real distance here is further. And, And furthermore, no clear line of sight 
from where they were eating to the apartment. So there's yeah. no clear line of sight. This is the first thing we tripped over and we covered this case way back in the day. Oh, here we go. Was we heard from someone <laughs> who lived in Europe and, and I won't say where, but they said, this is just what people do. And so we mentioned that, you know, but a lot of people freaked out. They're like, no one ever leaves their kids like that. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, but apparently someone somewhere told us they did. But yeah, it's a fascinating case that you would leave your children to go party and go eat and whatever else, but you can't see where they're at and you just assume they're safe. Yeah. Well, the reason they left them there that night and actually the nights previous to that was that Jerry and Kate never took a buggy with them. So they didn't have access to transport very easily, three young children. So they asked the hotel and said, can we eat in the tapas bar? Now, the tapas bar was not for restaurant eating. It wasn't for evening eating at that mm. stage. Uh, and the, the hotel said, well, but given there's a number of you, we'll allow that to happen. So on that night, Jerry and Kate leave Madeline and the twins in the apartment, go and have a meal. And there is no room service, listening service for the children at this stage. So they agree amongst themselves with the families, the rest of the tapas group, that they would take it in turns to go back and check on their respective children uh, from the group. And around about nine, five past nine, that's the first time that a visit is done. Jerry McCann says that he walks back to the apartment to check. There then is a, f a f second person that comes after that, which is Jane Tanner. And Jane Tanner becomes a really crucial first witness sighting of a man who's scraggly haired walking across carrying a child that's the first one that came out and then we have a further check that's done by another party and then around about 10 o'clock kate goes into the apartment she says she notices the window open and madeline's not in her bed and it's at that point she raises the alarm and of course the following morning is history really we now know that it became huge news and attracted worldwide attention and even 14 years on now in the uk it's probably the biggest missing person investigation and it's certainly attracted the largest amount of funding so it started may 3rd 2007 but it continued on for about four years until scotland yard got involved and basically said it's likely not the parents but being for the first four years, the parents were on hot coals constantly. Yeah, they had been eliminated by the Portuguese prior to that. So the Portuguese but, but had... the ball had been rolling. It was yeah, I mean, the, the quite quickly, Gonzalo Amaral, who was the investigating officer in the Portuguese police, believed that it was a family. Right. And quite quickly believed it was Jerry and Kate and then went out looking for evidence to support that. Uh, and indeed, he still maintains that now. He, the Jerry and Kate have been uh, totally exonerated by both the Portuguese and the British in respect of that. And the whole thing went cold, really. Absolutely cold until last year. The Germans. The, the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I watch uh, Faulty Towers. <laughs> but this is great because now they come along and say, we have a break in the case, essentially. Yeah. And what I love about this is, you know, you can come up with someone that's like, oh, this looks like the sketch or this person was in the area. This person, as we call it, ticks so many boxes yeah. just between motive and opportunity mm -hmm. and everything else. So do you want to talk a bit about Christian well, Brucker well, and how hold, he got Hold on. on. Before you get to that, in order for the parents to be guilty or have yeah. done this, their friends would have had to have been in on it yeah. because there's no way they could have disposed of their own child yeah. without ringing alarm bells with, you know, the people they're with. Yeah. And so that's kind of why 
you know, when I heard about the cadaver dogs hitting on rental cars and stuff, I'm like, that looks very suspicious for the parents. But mm. would I believe that their friends would be in on this also? That's harder to accept. Yeah, I think the problem with it was in terms of the parents, and there's still animosity uh, and feeling around the world that the mm -hmm. parents had something more to do with it or yeah. were involved with it. I think one of the massive issues that sits around that is that Jerry and Kate were very much considered prior to the DNA, really, or the dogs, that they were involved by the, by the uh, Portuguese police. But then when they have the dog scenario, yeah. so basically what happens is they call in the British uh, police to help them bring their dogs. The dogs do a search in the apartment and in the car that they'd hired some 24 days after Madeline's disappearance. And they find a trace. The dog gives a signal. They then take <clears throat> samples from those locations and they send them to the UK. And in the UK, they're then analysed. And as a result of that analyst, the Portuguese police did not wait for the results to come back. So as soon as the results had gone, as soon as the tests had gone to mm -hmm. the British laboratory, the Portuguese at that stage decided they were going to go, go for gold, really, in their terms, and announce Jerry and Kate as being suspects and that the DNA was 100%. What actually was, was they had been given instructions by the Leicestershire Chief Constable and the Leicestershire Police saying to them, there is no meaningful interpretation of this DNA. Mm -hmm. And it goes further than that, saying that actually it's low copy number and it shouldn't be used for it in this basis. And it's very interesting why the British police did not correct the Portuguese police in respect of when the Portuguese police came out and said it's their DNA. Mm -hmm. We now know from a Home Office um briefing is that the reason they didn't correct it is they felt that they shouldn't step on the toes of the Portuguese authorities <laughs> doing it, which is mad, really, because you, yeah. you, you know, get some individuals. But there's still strong feeling for that. Yeah. They have now been completely exonerated. Mm -hmm. And of course, Christian Bruckner, initially identified by the uh, press, really, because when the Germans came out and said it, we said, they said, we've got a German who's in prison for sex offences, and we mm -hmm. want to know his vehicle, and we want to know that. I've spoken to Mr. Walters, who says to me, well, we didn't name him. And I said, well, you might as well have done. <laughs> yeah. You said what car he was driving. Yeah. You said where he was in, in jail. Uh, and you said, you know, who he was as an individual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to work that out. And, of course, within a matter of hours, everybody knew who he was. I'm sure everyone in this room could have figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bruckner's an important uh, key to this case, possibly, because he lived essentially next door to, I can't say prior to <laughs> Anyway, he's literally next door, and he was known for breaking into places. He has a history of at least interest in pedophilia, if yeah. not involvement. And the case that brought him to prison is a case where he had raped and tortured a 72-year-old woman yeah. in Portugal. So he had, and, and things that he said they found from the internet are disturbing. And he's the exact kind of person who is looking to capture a small person and torture them. Yeah, I mean, he fits the profile. This is an individual who's in jail for the rape of a 72-year-old woman, uh, the allegation being, and he's been convicted of it, of breaking into her house, uh, tying her up and raping her. And beating and, her with a metal rod. And mm. Yeah, and beating yeah. her with, with some kind of metal object. And in fact, his defense to that is that, because there was a DNA found, there's a hair strand DNA found in the, on the bed. And it's quite interesting how that's found. So the, going back to the analysis, first of all, so the Portuguese do their investigation, take a load of samples and keep it. Now, they then keep that for six years 
<laughs> in a little box somewhere. That's that's obviously what they're saying. saying. And then the Germans come along and say, well, we're looking at Christian Buchner in relation to this. Uh, what have you got? And they said, oh, we've got this magic little box. Let's send it to you. So they send it to the Germans. The Germans do an analysis of it and find a single hair strand of DNA. That's to which he's got convicted of. His response to that as to why his hair could end up in the house was that he used to stroke the cat outside the house. <laughs> Uh, and it's as it's a, a result cat. of that oh, there is transfer yeah. DNA. Um, so that that's his response to that. But he fits the profile in every other sense. He is a predatory paedophile. He's got yeah. convictions for child sexual offences against young children. He is a uh, an avid user of the internet for collecting child abuse material. I think what trans what changed massively between the Portuguese the Germans and the British was when the Germans came out and said, we're not just investigating the disappearance of Madeleine McCann, we're now investigating her murder. And it certainly changed because, and the British still maintain that it's a missing person investigation. It's not a murder inquiry, but he is very clear. I mean, if you've listened, if you've watched Walters, not only does he say this is a murder investigation, Mm -hmm. he says he is our man. We've got him using the phone outside the apartment in Pride to Lose. And it's him. There's just one problem. We don't quite have enough evidence to charge him. Yeah. And they look for it. I mean, when they raided his place, they found lots of images and videos because he would record his crimes. Yeah. That attack on that 72-year-old woman, he recorded the entire ordeal. So they have that. Then he had a hidden cellar that they dug up. And they took out, what, they call them skiffs or something. But they dug it all up and analyzed it all. They couldn't find any evidence tying Madeleine McCann to him. But they very much believe this is, and based on, or not an eyewitness, but a, a friend of his who had came, come forward and said, you know, he talked about wanting to capture someone and keep them and torture them. And then they know from his time on this pedophilia forum that he was talking about capturing a small person and torturing them for days. And that was his, his dream. His, his biggest problem in terms of being an offender is that he collects this stuff and he keeps it. Now, we know that with a lot of child sex offenders is they are hoarders. They keep mm-hmm. it. They obsessively collect their material. Uh, so what he did in around 2014 is he decided that he was going to bury a load of his child abuse material and communication that he had on the memory stick under his dead dog Yes, in a box factory yeah. that he owned. And that's where he buried it. He put it there, leaving it there. Uh, I can only assume, thinking that it would never be found, the problem is, is the dog was found by another dog who <laughs> ran off. So this other dog is out walking with the owner, and the dog runs off and picks up the scent. And then at that point, starts to dig into the ground and finds there's a dog there, calls the police, because the s- smell is disgusting, absolutely disgusting. At this stage, the individual who finds the dog digging, thinks that it could well be a body. Yeah. Phones mm-hmm. the police, please come along and do a full search. Now, I've been to that box factory, and I can tell you it's one spooky place. It's pretty <laughs> horrible. And what's crazy to me, though, is I used to think the parents were involved just because of the media yeah. coverage. Yeah. Just It was so damning of the parents. And at the time, with the, the dogs, the bloodhounds, the cadaver dogs, I'm like, well, if they hit on the car, then, you know, but they mm-hmm. never specify. Well, that was a month after yeah. the event. And it's, it just really shows how easily we can be persuaded by journalism and, and whatnot. And 
you know. And, and, and I we, think that's spot on yeah. because we as a public and, and as investigators will often look at a case. And, of course, we have to have faith that the authorities know what they're doing. We have to trust and believe that the police have the capabilities, have the experience and knowledge to get it right. But we know that's not always the case. And if you follow that narrative, Murat was a suspect by the Portuguese in relation to Madeleine McCann. They were convinced Murat did it, yeah. innocent. They were convinced Jerry and Kate did it, exonerated. Now they're convinced Christian Bruckner has done it. And what will that unfold yeah. and tell us? And I think one yeah. of the things that I always look at when I get involved in a case is go right back to the beginning. I don't care what the police officers are saying. I don't care what the media is saying. I want to go and get that evidence for myself. And, and that's what I'll do. And that's actually what we've done with this program. So the program that we're doing now is a three-parter, and it is solely looking at is Christian Bruckner involved in the disappearance of Madeleine McCann? And I'd love to tell you what my conclusion will be, but I'm not going to do because it's... Uh, <laughs> you want us to watch the show? The program, but I will tell you that it, it, it is yeah. perhaps sometimes we we are too trusting yeah. of the authorities. Jeremy Bamber. <laughs> which, We're moving on. <laughs> yeah, which for the most part, uh, you know, I, I guess here in the UK, it's just reported on that that guy's guilty all day long. And he absolutely annihilated his entire family. Um, and I can see how that picture gets painted. But when I looked into this case, I was like, there's some questions here. <laughs> there's, it's not perfectly wrapped up. And uh, um, as far as uh, that case goes, I mean, I don't want to jump too far into it, but there is a phone call that's made to the police saying my sister's killing the family. And then it just was released that there might have been two phone calls, one from the father and one from Jeremy, saying the same exact thing. Now, I will say that that police report is hard to read. <laughs> it's really hard to interpret that police report. But for the most part, it seems that there are two numbers that came in. One was the family's number and one was Jeremy's number. Now, whether or not Jeremy gave that number over or if that number was a, a call-in, that can be up for interpretation. But even if the father didn't call in, even if it was just Jeremy, he called from his house, which yeah. was over 10 minutes away via bicycle. And that should give anyone pause because he was literally riding his bicycle. The cops got there before him. They got there at like 3.30 in the morning. Yeah. There are reports that there was movement inside the house while Jeremy's outside with the police officers. Who's moving? inside the house. And then it wasn't until about seven, seven thirty in the morning that they enter the home. They find his family annihilated. They find his sister and her wounds are still, are still fresh. They're her. She's still bleeding. You don't bleed after four hours. That just right there. I was just like, I have problems here. Um, and it's, it's not that I want everyone to be innocent. I'm not one of those people. I'm, I'll totally say this guy's guilty as hell. He's Stephen so Avery. don't ask me how I feel about Stephen Avery. Cause <laughs> anyways, um, and, and it's funny because, it, you know, in here it's like, see, it seems Jeremy Bamber. A lot of people think he's guilty mm -hmm. and a lot of people think Stephen Avery's innocent and American. I'm like, you've been manipulated by yeah. that stupid documentary. Um, they made a murderer. He, they, 
by falsely imprisoning him. Anyways, I don't want to go off topic. So, but but let me just. <laughs> yeah. I think that is useful there yeah. because the, the narrative that we get painted as public yeah. and as investigators lead us down a path, doesn't it? And you know the way that that program was told through making a murderer wanted you and were telling you yeah. Avery is innocent. Yeah. Ignore all the other evidence. And in fact, what we'll do is we won't tell you all the other evidence. Yeah. We'll just tell you the evidence that paints a picture of him being guilty. And then when we make another one, we'll change all the evidence over <laughs> yeah. because the other stuff doesn't work anymore. We're yeah. coming up with all new stuff. Because in the beginning, it was her boyfriend. This is a Stephen Avery thing with Teresa Halbach. It was her boyfriend. Or it was the cops framing the whole thing. And then in the second season, now it's Stephen Avery's brother. And I'm like, no. <laughs> the easiest explanation is it was Stephen Avery. Uh, and when Brendan Dassey had that phone call with his mom and she said, did you do this? And he said, some of it. Yeah. <sighs> now, Brendan, I think they railroaded him in his interrogation and stuff. And I think they could have given him a lighter sentence. But I think he was being honest with his mother when he said some of it. I think he did help dispose of her body manipulated wasn't she it? was so upset with him when he said yeah. that yeah and she started ranting about steven she was so yeah. upset yeah. so you know that's a thing but yeah. with jeremy bamber's case i'm i've read all the articles and they're just like evil family annihilator asking for you know an appeal and i'm like wow you guys aren't even trying to be like unbiased here it's just you know this horrible guy and uh I, I guess it's there's a lot more to a lot more questions here. And I was trying to ask you, like, how do you fall on that? Because I was afraid that you'd be like, he's absolutely guilty. Yeah. And I'm like, because I got some questions um, like the way her body was his sister's body yeah. was found. Uh, explain that. So so one of the issues, of course, is you've so the chances <clears throat> are she was killed last. Yeah. And everybody else was killed before. So prior to that, uh, you've got Neville and June who have been murdered and then also the twins in their bed. Yeah. And in, so if she is murdered last, she's already aware of that. And obviously in a very bad state in regards to that. But her body is laid prostrate beside the bed with her head slightly tilted and the rifle on her chest. In order to get somebody to do that, there is only two options. You either incapacitate them, forcibly get them to do it, as in, so that's one version, or they do it voluntarily. Now, what's the chances of her lying down voluntarily, allowing herself to be killed if she's got nothing to do with anything? That, I'd say, is zero. Yeah. There is no intoxicant in her body in the limited uh, tests that were done, and there is no, certainly no marks on her body in any way at all. So how do you get an individual who's aware of murders taking place to be entirely compliant to lie down on the floor and Jeremy put the rifle on her stomach and shoot her in the neck. That is, is the forefront of it all. Because yeah. if you look at that, everything else falls apart. I think the issues with the phone call are very interesting. I know from having been in the force and the way records are kept is that it's very easy to, to slightly confuse times yeah. and write them in a slightly different way. Whether there were or whether there weren't two phone calls, the, the, the center of this is the fact that Jeremy has no behavioral issues. Yeah. No matter what you say in terms of the press, I mean, exactly the same. You know, Madeline, uh, Kate McCann was picked on because she went running still and she, you know, she, her, she washed the cuddle cat. 
Yeah. Well, this presupposes that when something happens to you, we have to act in a normal way. We have to act in the way. So when if a critical incident happens to mm-hmm. me, my response is going to be the same as your response. But we know that's not true. No. Of course they don't. Your adrenaline uh, environment changes that completely. So when it gets to Jeremy, Jeremy has no behavioral issues. But look at at, uh, at her. You know, she, Sheila had history of mental illness. She'd been in a, in a hospital, being treated for psychotic behavior and schizophrenia. She was a cannabis user. And she'd also previously spoken about killing the children. And in the weeks prior to that, she'd walked around the house um, reciting areas of the Bible. That's not normal behavior. Yet none of that got picked up in, in relation to her behavior. If there was anybody who had, was predisposed to commit a murder or murders, then suicide, it was her. But and Jeremy Bamber didn't, I would say this, he didn't come across very well to the no. media. And there were reports about his behavior at the funerals. Yeah. So that must have played a role too, right? I think it does. And I think what we do is it's far too often than not. We we look at individuals and particularly within the media. You know, when you look at an individual, you try and build that environment around the individual and say, you know, could they have done it because their their behavior is right? Mm-hmm. You know, it was Jeremy Bamba. I, I write about Jeremy Bamba and he communicates mm-hmm. with me. I didn't know him prior to the um the instant taking place and maybe he was an arrogant guy yeah. but being arrogant doesn't make you a killer you know it's the same way you know i i interviewed oscar pastorius got the world interview with oscar pastorius yeah. and spent a lot of time with oscar mm-hmm. and of course there was an awful lot of comments about what oscar is like as a person i've spent time with him i've spent a lot of time with him i've been back and seen yeah. him in prison recently uh, and you know i think he's a genuine bloke but I didn't know him prior to going to jail. I didn't know him whilst all that was yeah. going to place. He was living in a very different world. But when you see them in this type of environment, you see what type of people they are. I think he was arrogant. I think he was a young man who who behaved in that type of way. Pr- prison can humble you. <laughs> can humble you. But you know, was he capable of doing that? Yeah, I think everyone's capable of killing. But did he do it? The evidence tells me not. If that came to court today not guilty and you're yeah. talking about jeremy bamba, jeremy yeah. bamba so you're jumping across yeah, yeah no if that came to court today jeremy bamba i don't think he'd be found he wouldn't be found guilty but actually i don't think the crown prosecution service would charge him because i don't know if you've seen there's a document in the days after the murders when all of the senior officers get together with the forensic doctor and they all say this is murder suicide yeah you know she had committed murder then she killed herself so they all had written that off. They'd all decided it was this. And then suddenly, Julie Mugford comes out of the woodwork and says, no, 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 no. You don't know what this man's like. And actually, he'd set this the whole thing up. And of course, they then pull her story apart and it doesn't, doesn't stand up. But then they continue down that path. And I, I don't know if it's the same for you when you look at your crimes. What we have very often is a senior investigating officer, so the person in charge of the case, who's got their theory their hypothesis, and actually that's where they're going, and it doesn't matter what else comes in, they have to follow that path. We we call it putting on the blinders and and going after their gut Mm -hmm. and regardless of evidence that points other directions. Um, And that's human nature though. I I mean, I don't really just say they're idiots for doing this. I'm like, we all would kind of do that. You think that person did it, so you're going to look for evidence that that person did it. You're not going to say, well, who else was in the room? Oh, the, 
you know, the janitor was there. Well, let's go interview him. That's not always the first thing on anyone's mind because you think, well, the husband was there with the wife and she's dead. The husband did it. And you're not going to always just go with, well, who else was in the room? Who else was there? Who else could have done it? And with uh, Jeremy Bamber's sister, I, I know you mentioned cannabis, and I, I just have to respond to that because I'm a very pro-cannabis advocate. But but I have several friends that do suffer from paranoid schizophrenia, and they say it makes it worse when they smoke pot. Yeah. So I can understand how that could make a situation worse. Helps other people. I have another friend that suffers from par- paralyzing anxiety. The only thing that helps her is edible cookies. I mean, she can take that over Seroquel all day long, and it will. Calm I think her if you're down. predisposed, yeah. to it, yeah, it, it doesn't help, does it, in any yeah. way at all? And if I smoke weed, I'm curled up in a corner thinking zombies are going to attack. It freaks me out. <laughs> so, um, but all the other issues there, it just it makes more sense because. Yes, Jeremy Bamber had a motive. He would get the house. He'd get the inheritance. He'd get everything. And he wouldn't have to deal with the family. But that's not always just a, you know, that's always a default motive that we always have. And, I mean, if if my mom dies today, I get her house and all of her money. But does that mean I want her dead? Because if I get her house, I'm going to have to sell it. And it's a big headache. And, <laughs> There's so many times, though. And that's what happens. <laughs> This mode of work. Yeah, <laughs> and it I makes know. sense. I know. It's that. The- and you're going to blame a mom of uh, <laughs> yeah. these children. I, I mean, know. that's where it's, it's difficult for me to say, you know, what they did was awful. I mean, they're they're trying to figure out what happened. Yeah. Then you have this new person with information coming in who knows more than they do about the family. Mm. I can see where that's compelling. Mm. But the question is, is can we turn things around if we realize mistakes were made? That's the most difficult part. And it is really difficult. You know, we've got... I. I'm an advocate for the best, I think we have the best criminal, one of the best criminal justice systems in the world in the UK. There's no doubt about that. It's a very good uh, adversarial system. But but when it's wrong, when it's got wrong, turning it over is really, really difficult. I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK. It's not any better. It's no better. <laughs> no. No. It's, well, it's worse in some states than others. Yeah. Texas, Texas is, uh, you're, you're done. Get it. If you're there, good luck to you. Yeah. Because what you've got is you've got a judicial system, which is, which is still judge-heavy public schoolboy. No doubt about that. You know, judges still yeah. sit within the public uh, system as far as public schools. They all, the majority of them know each other. Uh, and when they've made a decision, they just all cl- close ranks. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult to get a case back to a court of appeal in front of a judge who doesn't know the judge that made the previous decision. Um, and so what's getting better is you've got the new, new, uh, judges coming through. So you've got a new judiciary coming through, but it's still incredibly difficult to get that new evidence. And our, our weighted judicial system is that the amount of evidence you have to get to get it turned over and to get it looked at again. And we've got a, a judicial system that's on its knees yeah. because it can't cope with the current cases that are going on, let alone reviewing cases and bringing those back to court. Uh, Overwhelmingly, people in jail are guilty. No doubt about that. You know, whenever I I do anything, you know, as far as miscarriage of justice, you see the amount of letters I get from people from jail telling me how they are innocent. Yeah. And you look at it it and you go, you're stone bonkers guilty. However you look at it, however you look at it. 
But there are they, those they, small numbers. You're telling me there's a chance I can get out yeah. on a technicality, yeah. you know, and that's what they want do. Freedom. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I and I you know I, I used to think oh American judicial system is the worst, and then I would look at Canadian one. I'm like, eh, they kind of do their thing. And I look at the UK one. I'm like, yeah, the UK one's great. And then I looked into your guys' post office mail scandal, and I'm like, yes, (laughs) not perfect. Oh, terrible. (laughs) Or Luke Mitchell, which is another case where it seems like it's like the Madeleine McCann when they went after the parents. Yeah, it's literally like, well, this theory makes sense. No, and that's that. That's that narrow-minded view by certain individuals who are leading cases to go. This is where I'm after. And that's what happens. And, and the cases that I end up looking at, I mean, I did a review for my podcast. Uh, one of the cases we covered was a young girl who was in jail for murder. She was accused of murdering and convicted this person who was married to the woman she was having an affair with. Anyway, we looked at it all and we did a, a complete reinvestigation. And the fundamental element of this case was all around DNA. Could she have been in the room and got blood splatter on her? But the senior investigating officer, who actually know, and the only reason she gave me an interview was that she knew me. I think afterwards now she'll think she wishes she never gave <laughs> me Regretted that one. Because what happened <laughs> is that I said to her, well, okay, so how is it possible that this woman has 38 stab wounds on her, yet there is not a single transfer of blood from the victim to the offender yeah. at all? And the response to that, and this is what they ran at court, she came in a full forensic body suit. And I said, you are, are you being serious? And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, what? So, so, and she did it and she changed her shoes twice, did she? Yeah, she brought two lots with her. I said, well, you, so tell me any other case you've ever been to where a full forensic bodysuit has been used. I, I keep mine in my suitcase. <laughs> I mean, you never Is know. American Psycho real? <laughs> and her response was, Christian Bell never, act. never. You know, no. I've never seen it. I said, that's because it's never happened. Yeah. And it isn't. And then, then I said to her, I said, look, you know, you, it, it looks like a suicide. The chances are it is suicide. Yeah. You know, don't then try and invent a murder. And her response to me, which was, which is what we end the podcast on, which is, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And I said, it looks like suicide. It's suicide. Yeah. There's uh, a current situation happening in Kansas City uh, where there's a man who's wrongfully convicted. Everyone knows he's wrongfully convicted. The prosecutor and attorney general are like, this guy needs a new trial. Mm-hmm. When the prosecutors are saying that, you know there's a yeah. problem. And the prosecutor is saying, we, we need to get a new trial, but I don't want it to happen in the same court system that he was found guilty in. The prosecutors saying that because they know that the judges are just going to say yeah. no. And they just shot that down and he's going to have to get his retrial in the same court system that he was found guilty in. And they were trying to pull him out of that county. He, there it's a county. Mm-hmm. It's like the area. And Is uh, this the Kevin Strickland case? Yes, the Kevin Strickland case. And the prosecutors are trying to – prosecutors, not the defense. <laughs> I just have yeah. to reemphasize that. Trying to get him moved, change of venue to get him a retrial or an appeal or anything. And the judges keep shooting it down. Uh, it is good. And I'm, you yeah. know, I think the job that you do in the way that you do it, it helps to shine light on some of those cases and ask the, the questions that perhaps go unanswered. Yeah. And also challenge some of those perspectives that are given. You know, we, we, and, and I, you know, I sit in the media, but I think we have a lot <clears throat> to answer for in the way that we present things yeah. and the way that we, 
we want we set a narrative almost every day. I firmly believe that the British media, you know, the newspapers, set a narrative of the of the public's view of things, and it's up to them people to look behind that and yeah. say, well, actually, you know, what is really going on here? Um, and and I think from in the jobs that you've done, you know, was it over three hundred fifty podcasts? Yeah, I think we're at four hundred something. Yeah, they're not all up anymore. <laughs> we're, I mean, the number we're at is four thirty nine. I mean, that, we have an episode coming out. What's this wrong with us? <laughs> about um, two different murdered priests and whether their murders were connected. That's and actually Aaron with Nick from yeah, True Crime Justin Garage. Be there, I'll be on uh, this week's uh, True Crime Garage. <laughs> Little crossover thing, yeah. right? But yeah, it's it's interesting because the media, of course, they have great journalists that do great investigation, but they're also trying to make money. Yeah, and so you know, as people who are podcasters, we start off with just questions yeah. and I don't know that we're better, but yeah. I think the difference is we actually do want to know the truth yeah. and we don't really care. Well, you're impartial. You, well, you're, that's massively yeah. you're impartial. You've got no vested interest no. to get a result one way or the other. I, I have no dog in the race of Madeline McCann's parents were guilty or not. I don't, it doesn't matter. And, and it's, I know we're all very passionate about these things, but regardless of somebody's being found innocent or guilty doesn't impact me. I just want the truth to come out because I want the system to understand or change. But I don't like to argue with people about whether or not somebody's innocent or guilty because it doesn't matter at the end of the day if I won that argument or not. And if this whole conversation was up on YouTube for clickbait, it'd be like Generation Y destroys Mark. And, you know, and it's just like, no, we had a discussion. <laughs> and most of the time it is a discussion, but you have to do it for the clicks and the ads. Yeah. And it's so. I hate it. <laughs> I and it's the it. spin, isn't it? You yeah. know, it, different broadcasters have different spins, newspapers, different spins in terms of the story that they want to portray and how they yeah. want to portray. I mean, how many times have you read a headline and then read the article and you thought, is this the same thing? Yeah. Because actually they didn't say that. A headline does not say yeah. what's in this article. Um, Go literally, you know, the Roswell UFO crash. The headline is, you know, farmer finds, you know, saucer in his yard. As soon as you read the article it's like wooden sticks and rubber bands and stuff and i'm like that doesn't sound like a ufo saucer to me but that headline even in the 1950s or whatever it was they were doing it then and now we have social media and clicks and you know algorithms to just pump that towards you it's it's really horrible i i don't like who coined the term fake news but it is fake news out there here um, we go now you're spreading fake news. <laughs> <laughs> But it's I mean, just, much. just seeing like, cause when literally I thought, well, we're going to be on stage with Mark talking about Jeremy Bammer. He's probably going to think this guy's totally guilty. I, I literally came in here thinking that, um, because I've read all the articles in Britain and it's just like this mass murder family annihilator. He is absolutely guilty. And I'm like, oh, geez, I don't want to have a debate today. I just want to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause I, I thought there was enough questions where I think this guy, if I was on the jury, with the evidence we know now, I don't know how I would have felt being on the jury at the time, because when you're on the jury, there's this whole, you know, legal melee of what's admissible and what isn't that happens before the jury even walks into that. And so if I'm trying to find Aaron guilty or not, and all I know is, you know, this body's in his hotel room. But if 
what's deemed inadmissible is that the entire staff here hated that hotel manager <laughs> and that's you know that person was killed that day and all i'm given is well aaron was the last person that checked into that hotel room and that's where the body was found and well aaron you know he didn't get his breakfast this morning so he might have been a little hangry when you're on a jury and that's all you're fed that's all the evidence you have to go on and you have to make your decision based on that and you're not given like, you know, with Jeremy Bamber's case or Madeline McKenzie, you don't have like what we have when we do our podcast. We're usually doing episodes on cases that are years old. So we can put it together in a neatly packaged, you know, delivery system for you. Cause I mean, in this whole race to be first with the media, you know, and Jeremy did this or, you know, parents look guilty. It's, this rush to be first and get it all the all the information wrong. And of course, everyone now is a broadcast journalist, don't they? Because yeah. everybody has access to a mobile phone. You know, yeah. when you when any case happens, literally the amount of people now through social media that get online and start reporting about it. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you can get it wrong completely. You can destroy people's lives. But the other thing is, it's there for perpetuity. You know, yeah. once you put it up online, it's effectively there forever. Yeah. And and there are people out there who are not trustworthy, who who might do it, or, and others that might do it generally, but just don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And and therefore we we have a massive impact on people's lives. So the whole way we communicate the news now has completely changed. And I think what we have to do is to is to not go with the with the sheep. Yeah. You know. I filled my car up with petrol this morning, but I had to fill it up. Yeah. I, I had real pains yeah. when I... We've got this mad situation in the UK at the moment. In the, that's all that's on your news. In, <laughs> I don't watch the news, but I walk past TVs that are showing the news. And that's petrol, petrol, petrol. There's, there's no... Don't panic, don't panic, but don't only put... But only fill your car up with a quarter of a tank of petrol. I mean, the public <laughs> is going to panic. Um, so we have this, this narrative where the, the sheep yeah. follow everybody else. Yeah. And I think... What we have to do is responsibly step away from that and say, let's take it right back to the beginning, which is exactly what I do. You yeah. know, all of my investigations is about taking what we know and pulling it apart. So yeah. I literally pull all the police investigation apart, start to build the bricks. And it's incredible. The more the story is covered, the more inaccuracies. Madeleine McCann is classic. You yeah. know, we've looked at Madeleine McCann's, all the stories around that, and you'll be amazed at the utter rubbish, untruths, inaccuracies. And of course, once it's gone in there, then somebody else writes about it or somebody else says that that's what's happened. And that becomes fact. And it's exactly the same as Jeremy. And it'd be exactly the same as, as many other cases. And what's, uh, uh, what's her name in, in America? They just found her body. Um, uh, Gabby, Gabby, Gabby. So her, her, at this point, that's a massive story for you. And at this point, I think her boyfriend's still on the run. Um, but just imagine if that guy actually didn't do it. Like just for a second. I mean, he probably did it, but, <laughs> but just imagine for a second and then just imagine he's off and he's now killed himself because of all the media, high pressure, everything. We'll never get an answer now because if he's off himself out in, you know, a swamp in Florida, we'll never know. And if that autopsy report for Gabby is not crystal clear, no one's going to be happy with the outcome of this whole situation. And it's playing out in real time. Isn't yeah. It? You know, I, w- I was watching a clip the other day when the police went to the house and there was all the public outside with the cameras and filming. And, and it yeah. was just like, this is, 
This is a weird environment we're in now. Yeah. That actually people's life is being played out in real time in front of us. You forget dramas on TV. Forget those. This is real time playing yeah. out in front of they us. And these are people's the lives. Yeah. We are. We are the characters within <laughs> yeah. it. Well, that's why we're into true crime and not, you know, soap operas and dramas and, you know, I mean, but that's just the, just the, the mad house going around Gabby right now. And it's a crazy story and I want them to find a solution for it. But then you just see like, well, they're not covering people of color. You know, they're just going to cover the, you know, the blonde white girl that went missing or this and that. And I'm just like, just stop <laughs> just mm-hmm. calm down and just like it just it just blows me away because like he said the more something is covered the more saturated it is the more details are going to get wrong and uh, i know especially with like mass shootings in america one i think they're way overly reported because there's not one happening on every corner i swear to god mm-hmm. um and two there's there's so much misreporting of there was two shooters there was three shooters da, 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 da. and then the crazy conspiracy theorists get a hold of that one tidbit of information that the media got wrong and they're like no see it was a government cover-up false flag event because they they said there was 20 victims and there's really 39 how could they get it wrong and it's like because the media is flawed yeah and and i think conspiracies i think you know conspiracy theory so many people have a, a conspiracy theory around so many different crimes aren't they yeah i often my the simplest explanation to a conspiracy theorist is, is incompetence. <laughs> um, Man, and that's by and large what happens. You know, <laughs> when, you, when you've got this view that the police have created a crime scene, they've set up a crime scene, or they've created this in a certain way, you know, the reality is, is they just failed to do it. It's incompetence. I mean, my phone was nicked last week. So we were filming. I put my phone with the camera kit, with the crew, thinking the crew were looking after it, and, the ca- and they weren't going to nick it anyway. Somebody decided they were going to sniff my phone. So off they took it. And uh, and we interviewed someone afterwards. And they said, oh, you, you, yeah, it's obviously something to do with Madeline. They, they obviously <laughs> Just go right to the top want to keep, They want to keep you quiet. How are they going to do that? Well, they keep you quiet for a while because they won't have yeah. a phone. But it doesn't stop very long anyway. And they can't get in my phone. you got a whole camera crew that's going <laughs> to... can't get in my phone. <laughs> you're, you're not so, going to shut up by but the they, But how technology's changed. So I tracked my phone down to a nearby <laughs> apartment block. Yeah. And and we went to this apartment block to find the phone. Sixty flats in this apartment block. Anyway, I was all up for banging every door. Yeah, yeah. Um I would have gone with you. Well <laughs> quite what I yeah, I'm hardly gonna open the door and go, Here's your phone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. So a good ending there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for coming and listening to us talk about a couple of cases and yeah. about crime in general and how it's reported and perceived. Yeah. Awesome. Real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Get that door open. Get some air.